Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. As we continue to preach through the Gospel of Matthew, we're now today at chapter 21, verse 23. My aim is to do exactly what Ryan read in Psalm 96, to, de- to declare His glory to all the nations, to declare His works, His mighty, great, awesome, glorious works to all the peoples. That's really what I hope to do. I pray that Christ will be glorified this morning. Matthew 21. Before we set the scene that's actually going on here in Matthew 21, I want to back out for just a second. I want to think about where this is in human history. Because God is a God of history. He declares the beginning from the end. Like where, how did, how did the world even get to this point? How did Israel even get to this point? Like if you remember the entire history of the, the Old Testament is century after century after century. God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to Israel. To warn them of judgment over sin and to call them to repentance. And prophet after prophet after prophet was ignored and even killed. And one day God just stopped calling. He just stopped sending prophets to Israel anymore. Listen to the words of a modern day Jewish scholar as he quotes rabbis from the second century says the life of the prophet of Malachi is an important turning point in Jewish history as it marks the close of the glorious era of Jewish prophecy the Talmud teaches After the last prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi died, after they died, the divine spirit of prophetic revelation departed from the Jewish people. That really happened. And they think that's still the case. God stopped talking. When Malachi stopped talking, God stopped talking. Now imagine what that must have been like in Jesus' day. For over 450 years, there had not been a genuine prophet in Israel. Heaven had been silent, not a peep from God. Now, if that's true, think about what it was they heard 450 years earlier. Man, it's been quiet. What what was the last thing he said? What did Malachi say? Well, according to Malachi, God promised to send two messengers to Israel. A prophet and then himself. Listen, just listen to this. 
Malachi 3, verse 1. God says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you see will suddenly come to his temple. God promised to send a prophet to prepare the way for him. And he promised to suddenly come to his temple personally. And after 450 years of fearful silence from heaven, guess what happened? That's what's going on. That's what's going on in the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 3, John the Baptist appears as a prophet to cry in the wilderness and prepare the way of the Lord. And now, right here in chapter 21 of Matthew, what's going on? The Lord has suddenly appeared in his temple. When this passage begins, this is the third day of Passion Week, and it's the third time in as many days that Jesus has come to the temple. You got the triumphal entry. You got the, his second appearance in the temple when he drives out the money changers. And now the third day he comes in again and he's immediately challenged by the Jewish leaders. And what do they say to him when he comes in? Basically, who do you think you are? That's what's going on today. Again, imagine seeing that in, in, in the entire, uh, from a view of the entire redemptive history, 450 years of silence, the Lord suddenly comes to his temple and they say, who do you think you are? This is what they're saying. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Man, this would be a good place to insert one of those, have you not read? Questions from Jesus? Have you not read Malachi 3? Don't miss what God said 450 years earlier. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. This is his temple. This is his temple. This is the Lord's temple. Last week, Dustin reminded us of this staggering reality that's on display when Jesus walks into his temple. He said, everything the temple represents just walks in the front door. He said, the true temple has entered the copy. The substance now stands in the midst of the shadow. And if anyone has the right to do what he's about to do, it's him. Why? Because the Lord has suddenly come to his temple. And now the temple servants are asking him, who do you think you are? No, the real question Jesus is about to expose to them is, who do you say that I am? Jesus is about to flip the tables again. Except metaphorically. 
He's going to turn the tables on them. And he's going to do it in this glorious display of wisdom and even grace to his enemy. He's going to simultaneously expose them for who they are while identifying himself, all while not speaking about himself directly and doing it with one question. He's asked them one simple question, and it's going to expose the Jewish leaders' fear and hypocrisy and unbelief and their fierce opposition to God while simultaneously establishing his identity and his absolute authority in his temple. One question. So I want us to behold the glory of the Lord in the wisdom of the words of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Lord, please glorify yourself. You have ordained all of these things. You spoke of them before they ever came to pass. You recorded them in this great book that we have. You've given us all copies of it. You've given us the opportunity to come to this place and hear this account of your mighty works in these simple words. And I ask, Lord, you would glorify your Lord. Pray that this word would come not in word alone, but in power. I pray that you would save the lost here today. I pray that you would grant the repentance that leads to life. I pray that you would strengthen your people and build up their faith. And they would adore you. Lord, please help us to adore you. Help us to marvel and be astonished at your wisdom. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So let's read Matthew chapter 21, verses 23 through 32. And when Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And, you, and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I, will, I also will answer you. I, I, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. Here's the question. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? They discussed it among themselves, saying, if we save from heaven, he will say, why then do you not believe him? Why then did you not believe John the Baptist? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And the son answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. 
And the man went to the other son, and he said the same. And the son answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And the Jewish leader said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe. So here we have again, Jesus entered the temple. He comes into the temple for the third time on the third day of Passion Week. He's been spending the night outside of Jerusalem in a little town called Bethany. And now he comes to Jerusalem and comes in again. And you can see in verse 23 that he's teaching. So the first thing he does when he comes to the temple is he's teaching the people when he is confronted by the Jewish leaders. It says they came up to him as he was teaching. And so look what's going on. Immediately almost, as soon as he gets to the temple, he is confronted by this, what seems to be a rather large contingent of the Jewish leadership. And so Matthew's given us the impression that the leaders have wasted no time in confronting him about what happened yesterday. Like, don't forget, like, this is like, bam, 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 one, two, three, three days in a row. And they come with a pretty impressive show of force. It's not just one or two guys here. This is the temple authorities. It says the chief priests, plural, and the elders, plural, of the people that came to him. This group of men came to him. And the parallel accounts in Mark and Luke add the scribes. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching. You got all the categories of Jewish leadership right there. Priests, scribes, elders, the three groups that made up the Sanhedrin, the high court of the Jews, the same group that shortly is going to condemn him to the cross. And they just immediately confronted him in the temple. What are they doing? So I want you to imagine this scene. The Passover crowds are just jam-packed in the court of Gentiles that Jesus just cleared out yesterday. And this large contingent in their showy garb and robes and their highfalutin status come up to Jesus and confront him right in the middle of him teaching, right in the middle of the public square. And they challenge his authority. And they do it with two questions. Look, in verse 23. By what authority are you doing these things? And the second question. Who gave you this authority? At first glance, that may look like the same question, but I think there's a difference. There's a difference in both what they're asking 
and why they're asking it. So first question he's, they, they ask is, by what authority are you doing these things? What do they mean, first of all, by these things? They're challenging Jesus on what's happened these last couple of days. They're challenging his authority. They're challenging his authority to come right in with messianic fanfare. If you remember what just happened at the beginning of chapter 21, on this first day, Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey like the messianic king in Zechariah. And he's surrounded by crowds and they're just shouting these messianic declarations and he's not stopping them. They're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Now, some of the religious leaders have already confronted him about that. And Jesus responded to them with scripture. But they challenged his authority. And basically, what they were asking is, who do you think you are? The Messiah? You think you're the, are you the son of David? Are you the king? What authority do you have riding in here like that and receiving messianic praise? Who do you think you are? Man, do you think they're really interested in discovering if he's the Messiah? No. So what is their motive? And then what if he said, yeah, I'm the Messiah. What do you think they would do in public? Bow down and worship him and so just shout for joy and say, he's here, he's here. No, they're trying to trap him. They would crucify him if he admitted to being the Messiah. If you don't believe him, just read ahead. Their aim is to discredit him and trap him, period. And so they're challenging that messianic fanfare. They're also challenging his authority to drive out the money changers. And the sense said, who do you think you are, the high priest? What authority do you have to dictate what happens in the temple? We're the priests, not you. Who do you think you are? Jesus was bad for business. He was a threat to their temple side hustle they had going on here. And he's a threat to their authority. And now, so what's it? How's he going to respond to this question? Is he about to usurp the authority of the Sanhedrin right here in broad daylight? Is that what he's about to do? That's what they want him to do. And they're also challenging his authority to teach. Because here he is. Just walk this, this dude from Galilee. From the backwoods, he's rolled into town, flipped the tables over, now he's preaching right here in the temple. Who do you think you are? Are you a scribe? Are you a rabbi? Funny, I don't see Jesus anywhere on the improved teacher list. Who do you think you are? A prophet? You're a prophet, Jesus? You think prophet? Are you the prophet? By what authority are you doing these things? That's what they're asking. And they've done the same thing to John the Baptist. I don't know if you remember, back early in Jesus' ministry, back in John chapter 1, they sent 
These same guys sent a contingency of priests to question John the Baptist's authority in baptizing people. And what did they ask him? Who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? In other words, who do you think you are, John? By what authority are you baptized? You see what they're doing, right? And then that leads to this second question. Who gave you this authority? Who, who gave you this authority? Because we didn't. See, so you got to realize this. They were the authorities. Who gave you this authority? Because we didn't. The Jewish leaders were the official, recognized, appointed authority in the temple. They were the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people. This is what it says. And they had the right and the duty to guard and rule the temple. They were in charge of church discipline. So to speak. I mean, think about it. They, they couldn't allow blasphemers and heretics to have free reign in Jerusalem. And this was their job. This was part of their job. And so the, the, the question is really important. If they didn't give Jesus the authority to do these things, because only God could override their authority in the temple. So, this second question is fundamentally, who gave you the authority? God or man? Because you ain't on our list, bro. We didn't give you the authority. And so, Jesus is in a tough spot. Right in the middle, he's just confronted by all of them. And here he is, right in public. He's in a tough spot. His authority has been challenged, literally, in the public square, by the Supreme Court of Israel, in front of everybody. Now, how should he answer? This is where he flips the tables. <laughs> how does Jesus answer the question? Look, just look at his tactics. Jesus answers their question with a question. Verse 24. I also will ask you one question. One question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. And here's the question. The one question Jesus asked. He's in a trap. And just asked one question. The baptism of John. From where did it come? From heaven or from men? So Jesus doesn't answer them directly. But instead he offers the answer if they'll answer his question first. Now, some commentators, they suggest that this was a regular or common tactic in Jewish debate back in the day. And I don't know if that's true, but what I do know is Jesus did it a lot, and he did it well. He did it well. Jesus does this all the time. He often answers questions with a question. You can see this all throughout the gospel. You can see it right here in this chapter. Look at verse 16. When they ask him, do you hear what they're saying? What's he do? Have you ever read? He answers a question with 
a question. You see it in the next chapter. He's going to do this in these confrontations. The next chapter, they ask him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Huh, whose face is on this point? He answers that question with a question. And man, the wisdom in this. In chapter 9, they ask him, why don't your disciples fast? Hey, can the wedding guests mourn while the bridegroom's with them? Answers the question with a question. Chapter 15. Hey, Jesus, why do y'all break the traditions? He goes, why do you break the commandments? Because of your tradition. They ask him in chapter 17. Don't y'all pay the temple tax? He says, do kings tax their sons? Answer question is a question. Man, if you go through some of these examples, you'll find out how Jesus' tactic of answering a question with a question is very effective. Very effective at accomplishing a variety of things sometimes. I want you to think about that. Some, answering a question with a question actually sometimes just gives the answer. You just have a simple, silly case. You ask me, Hey, are you going to church Sunday? And I say, does a cat have a climbing gear? Anybody? Anybody? I know you get that. Or is the Pope Catholic? You ask the question, I answered with a question, and if you answer my question, you get the answer. You see? So in other words, yeah, I'm going to church Sunday. Because cats can climb and popes are Catholic. Right? But you can do this, you can use the same tactic to probe deeper issues. Are you going to church Sunday? Well, you think this sermon's going to be better than last one? In other words, yeah, I'm going, aren't you? And what did you think about the sermon last week? Like all in that question. And now why am I doing it? Maybe I'm asking that question because I know the person hasn't even been there for three months. And they're going to say, well, I wasn't there. I said, I know you. And you haven't been there for six months. Or maybe I'm asking the question because I know last week's sermon would have been really especially applicable to them. And I really want to talk to them about it. Let's get this conversation started. Or maybe the sermon was on some doctrine that I know they've struggled with. And I want to help them with it. And I want to start right there. And it was that question could really probe, it could answer the question and probe some deeper issues. One question. And open the door for profitable conversation. So, with a little wisdom, notice I say a little wisdom, answering a question with a question can accomplish a lot. So let's look, just look at the great wisdom, not little, in this one question by Jesus. And I want you to know, like this is another way to behold the glory of Christ. We talk about this all the time. Beholding the glory of Christ is what saves people. Beholding the glory of Christ is what sanctifies and matures people in Christ. This is one way to do that. Is to just look at these, look at the words of Jesus. Just think deeply about the incredible wisdom in the words of Jesus. Remember how the crowds reacted when he finished the Sermon on the Mount? They were astonished at his teaching. You remember what happened early in Jesus' ministry when these same Jewish leaders sent some soldiers to 
to him to bring him back. Let's basically say, go arrest Jesus. Go arrest him. What happened? They came back empty-handed. And the Jewish leader said, why didn't you bring him back? And this is how they responded. No one ever spoke like this man. No one ever spoke like this man. It's like, you don't understand. I mean, we, we went to get him. But man, nobody talks like this man. And so they come back dumbfounded and empty-handed. This wisdom in the words of Jesus is really going to be highlighted in the next chapter. The crowds in chapter 22, verse 33 are going to be astonished again at his teaching. And these very leaders that kind of start this confrontation, lots of confrontations fixing that, by the way. And they start this confrontation. Ultimately, they're going to be shut down. Just look at the end here. Uh, look at the end of chapter 22. Very last sentence. It says, and this is after they're asking him questions, he's answering with questions. And then he starts, he turns the tables completely, and he asks them one last question, and it blows their mind, and it shuts their mouth. And it says, and no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. That's where we're headed. And it's starting with this question right here. Like this is... We, we just read past this stuff. We're missing it. No one ever spoke like this man. If you haven't been astonished by the words of Jesus in the Gospels, it's only because you haven't looked deeply enough into the rich and complex simplicity of what he's doing. I mean, let's just, just look at how he crafts this simple question. Look at what he would have to know. Look at what he's trying to accomplish. And so this question reveals his glory because it reveals his wisdom. So, think about all these things that go into this one question. He knows Scripture. You think he knows Scripture? In the beginning was the Word. He's the Word made flesh. He knows the scriptures. He knows the prophecies about himself. He knows the prophecies about John the Baptist. Jesus knows the history of these men. He knows the history of the interactions he's had with them. He knows the history of the, the interactions they've had with John the Baptist. He knows their pride. He knows their fears. He knows their motives. He knows their unbelief. And he knows exactly how to accomplish his immediate and redemptive purposes in this moment. And he's going to bring it all to bear in one question. You say, oh, you're making, you're making too much of this one question. Oh, no. Here's the question. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? So notice first that Jesus doesn't say anything about himself. He simply asks... What do you think about John's ministry? But he's not trying to shut them down. He's not trying to change the subject. He's not trying to redirect them or change the topic or even dodge their question. He's not trying to do that because gee, this question is not evasive. It's actually the answer to their question and then so. Now understand where they are. They are in the authoritative position. This is why they can even ask this question. 
And their authoritative position obligates them to provide the right answer. And they started it, right? They started By what authority do you do these things? Who gave you this authority? Well, what do you think about John? Who gave him that authority? And they, they, so they have an obligation to answer that question. They, and they're supposed to know the answer to that question. Alright? And so Jesus' one question simultaneously accomplishes four things. First and biggest, it puts them in a no-win situation. I mean, they come here, they come here puffed up, fixing to get this dude, fixing to trap him right here in front of everybody, and all of a sudden, boom, tables turn, no-win situation, doesn't matter how you answer this question, you're in trouble. This is what happened. And so this one question about the source of John the Baptist's ministry only has three possible answers. From heaven, from man, or I don't know. That's it. And you can see, imagine this. They bold confront Jesus and he asks this question and they go, hold on Jesus. Huddle up. They have to go huddle up in front of everybody. The Sanhedrin is huddling up because he asked them one question about John the Baptist. Look at what they, they huddle up. They talk amongst themselves, debating which one of the three answers that they can give him. Look. So, so here's what how it plays out. If they say from heaven, now this is option number one. Look at what they say. If we say from heaven, Jesus is going to say, why then didn't you believe John the Baptist? Right? And so if they say from heaven, guess what they do? They establish Jesus' authority. They answer the question and establish his authority that is from God. Because, look, what was John the Baptist's ministry all about anyway? It was about calling Israel to repentance because the kingdom of God was at hand. And why was the kingdom of God at hand? Because God's anointed king, the Messiah, was at hand. And there he is. That's what John the Baptist ministry was all about. It was all about Jesus, and they knew it, and they and John the Baptist had told them. John the Baptist told them, these same men, John the Baptist told these guys, either directly or through their representatives, he told them to flee the wrath to come. He told them, there's one coming that's mightier than I am. He's saying the one coming is going to baptize not with water, but with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The one that's coming, he's going to judge his temple. He is going to winnow people. He's going to clear his threshing floor. He's going to gather his wheat. He's going to burn the chaff, this one that's coming. This is how John's gospel starts is a talking about this guy named John the Baptist, a man sent from God to bear witness of the Messiah. And what do you say about Jesus? He's the true light coming into the world. Behold the Lamb of God. He's the Christ. He's the Son of God. That's what John the Baptist's ministry was all about. And so if the authority for John the Baptist's ministry was from heaven, that means Jesus himself is from heaven. He is the one with all authority 
in heaven and on earth and especially in His So if they stay from heaven, they establish His identity and they establish His absolute authority over them and everything else that exists. They also, if they say from heaven, they expose their rejection of Him. They expose that they reject the Messiah. If He's the Christ, I'm sitting here opposing Him right now. But they reject the Messiah and they are uh, in opposition to God and they end up proving themselves to be the guys in Psalm 2. The ones who gathered together and raged and conspired against the Lord and His anointed. That's what they proved to be. If they answer from heaven, that's who they proved to be right there on the spot. For anybody who knows, Psalm 2. And you know what? And they know it. They know it. Because look at what they're saying. If we say from heaven, he's going to say, why didn't you believe John the Baptist? They know what they're, they know what they're going to do. They know about what happens if they say that. And then lastly, if they say from heaven, they make themselves complicit in John the Baptist's murder. Remember, this, this prophet John, who was authorized by heaven, he ended up getting his head handed to a little girl on a silver platter. And he had been in prison for a while. And these guys didn't do anything about it. The Supreme Court of Israel didn't go to Herod and say, No, his ministry's in heaven, right? You might want to be careful what you do with him. But they didn't. They didn't care. They don't care about John the Baptist. They don't care about Jesus. They just want to lie to here. And it leads to the second thing they deliberated on is man. If we say from man, what do they say? For, if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd. Because they like John the Baptist. They all think John the Baptist is a prophet. So we can't throw John under the bus. And so at the, at the lowest, at the basic level, they fear the thing they love the most. Losing a little glory for men. Losing a little popularity. Right? And Jesus has accused them of this. You love the glory from men and not from God. He accused them of that in John 5. And so think about it. Throwing John the Baptist under the bus is going to put a serious dent in their approval rating. But there's actually more to it, as you can see in the text. Throwing John under the bus may put a serious dent in their head. Luke says they were afraid of the crowds because they thought the crowds would stone them. Like, so it wasn't just they're going to be unhappy and vote aside office. They would have mobbed, <laughs> ransacked these guys. And they knew it and they were afraid. And so, how do they answer Jesus? They're in a no win situation. And so they opt for the safest answer, which is to claim their ignorance, and they say, We don't know. We don't know. That doesn't help them. Because if they say, when they say, I don't know, they just lost their opportunity to trap Jesus. Right? They're trying to get him to incriminate himself, but he's already said, you answer my question, I'll answer your question. Now he says, neither will I tell you. He's out. He's out of their trap. They got no ammo to condemn him like they wanted to in front of the crowds. But worse than that, they know that by saying, we don't know, 
their lack of divine authority from heaven? We don't know. What do you mean we don't know? You're the Sanhedrin. You're the chief priest, the scribes, the elders of the people. You don't know. You're the spiritual leaders of Israel. You are the keepers of the law. You are the guardians of the temple. You are the experts in all things God. Just look at how you dress. Look at how you talk. You don't know. You don't know whether John the Baptist ministry was from God or man. You just disqualified yourself from judging Jesus or anybody else. Who do you think you are? So instead of Jesus' authority getting undermined, they look like fools. So, so in this one question, he puts them in a no-win situation, and then he, he publicly destroys their claim to divine authority by their own words. We don't know. And it answers, he answers their question. But with zero self-incrimination. In other words, Jesus doesn't bear witness about himself. All he does is remind everybody in the temple about what John said. Remember, they all hold John to be a prophet. They like John. The, the religious leaders knew what John said. But he knew that he said the kingdom of God was at hand because the anointed king had arrived. He knew that he had said Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. They knew that he had said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Mighty One. Behold the One who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. They knew all that. The Lord has suddenly come to His temple. Behold. He does all of that without saying a thing about Himself. And said nothing about himself. Now, last thing he accomplished with this one question is he condemned them. And yet there's an opportunity for repentance. Alright. This unanswered question establishes his identity and his authority, but it also exposes their condemnation. His one question exposes their unbelief. It exposes his rejection of John the Baptist. Their rejection of John the Baptist. It exposes their rejection of the Christ. Their opposition to God. Their fear of man. Their love of man's glory. And the wicked deception that's going on in their hearts. And through this parable that's coming right now. Next. He's going to indict them. Jesus is going to indict them directly. He's not, he's not, not going to beat around the bush anymore. He's going to pronounce their condemnation and declare them to be lost. And so in this next paragraph, this parable, he's going to continue to provide this answer without, without an answer. And he's going to give them actually three parables in a row. You wouldn't want me to try to preach all three parables. We don't, we don't have all day, right? So, so I'm just going to talk about one, but, but make no mistake, the three parables that follow are directed at them. Right? It's directed at them. Now, as the parable progresses, it gets more and more about the nation of Israel as a whole, but it is 
about them. This is sort of like Paul Washington's famous uh, shocking youth message when he says, I'm talking about you. This is what's happening right here. Because he's fixing to make it clear and they know it. They absolutely know he's talking about them because look at verse 45. It says, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived he was speaking about them. And so let's look at this parable in which Jesus is going to incriminate them and indict them. The parable of the two sons. Verse 28, he says, what do you think? So he's continuing the conversation. What do you think? Man had two sons. And the man went to the first son and he said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And the son answered, I will not. But afterward, changed his mind and he went. And then the man went to his other son and said the same thing. And that son said, I'll go. But then he didn't go. This parable is incredibly simple. Like, this is not complicated at all. And there's only four pieces to it. There's a father, two sons, and a vineyard. Right? Real simple. And the father commands his two sons to go work in the vineyard and produce fruit. That's what you do in a vineyard, right? You produce fruit. Notice that both sons get the exact same command. Right? Go work in the garden. He tells the first one, verse 30, he tells the other one the same thing. So the sons get the same command, but man, do they respond differently. They respond just completely opposite. What does the first son do? He rebels. Gets the command and rebels. But he eventually changes his mind. And he goes and he does the will of his father. Right? Look at what the first son does. Completely rebels. Blatantly refuses his father to his face. I will not. He says, go work in the vineyard. I will not. Stop and think about what the father should do right there. What would you do right there? With your child when they do that. What do you do when because they do? Now, the rebellious son does not get the beat down he deserves. We don't see that. So the father here seems pretty slow to anger. Remember that for later. But we also see that the story doesn't end with him saying, I will not, because it says afterward he changed his mind and went. Now, what's interesting about that, he changed his mind, is that's actually not the same Greek word that is normally translated repent, even though the King James says repent. It's actually a different word. Most of the time, uh, the word where you see they repented, he repented, repent, whatever. That's another word. This one's a real similar word. It carries a similar meaning. And I'm bringing this out because I think it's important. What it literally means is to care afterwards. In other words, I don't care right now, but oh, later on. Now I care. So, it, so it's basically realizing later that you made a big mistake. Realize later to have remorse, to seriously regret something, is what it means. And so this is what happened to this first son. He says, he rebelled, 
But later he regretted it. Afterward, he regretted it and he went and did it. He went and obeyed his father. Man, this is a lot like the concept you see Paul talking about in 2 Corinthians 7. Where this godly grief, this remorse, this regret actually produces repentance. Paul says you were grieved into repenting. The godly grief that produces repentance that leads to salvation. You kind of see this in his response because his serious regret... He didn't just sit there and go, oh man, I wish I wouldn't have said that. I wish I wouldn't have said that. His serious regret actually leads him to change his ways. He actually goes and obeys the Father. He did the will of the Father. But not so with the other son. Right? Look at the other son. The other son lies. <laughs> and does not do the will of the Father. The father says, go work in the vineyard. He goes, sure, Dad. Goes right back to doing what he's doing. You got a kid that ever does that? When dad's out of sight, he says, Sure, dad. When dad's out of sight, he keeps on trucking, keeps doing his own thing. So the other son doesn't look rebellious, but he is. The other son actually makes a good, good showing. A good showing. He looks and he sounds like the obedient one. He makes a claim. To please his father. But he doesn't make it his aim. To please his father. He looks real good. When you compare him to the rebellious son. In that moment right. But think about it. He's not going to get away with it. I mean how do you think you're going to get away with it? He's going to ultimately be exposed. So this other son. He makes a good showing. But he never brings any fruit. Remember what the command was? Go work in the vineyard. Like, how long can you cover that up with just talk? Oh, okay, I'll do it. Yeah, yeah, I'm going. At some point, the end of the day comes, and the father's going to go, all right, what you got? And so now Jesus tells the parable. They understand. It's real simple. And so he's going to incriminate them with another question and their answer. They're going to incriminate themselves. Right? Very simple. Jesus asked them to judge between the two sons. Verse 31, he says, which of these two did the will of their father? Quick answer. The first one. Simple. Obvious. The one who ultimately obeyed, despite his obvious and gross rebellion in the beginning, he ultimately obeyed. And this is where Jesus brings the application of the parable. And this is where Jesus brings the hammer directly on them. Now, don't forget where we are. We're still right in the middle of the temple square with a fancily dressed Sanhedrin confronting Jesus, surrounded by all the people. Now Jesus is teaching them a parable. He's getting them on the spot again with questions. And he brings this scathing indictment right here in public. He says, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before Take note. If Jesus takes a swing at you, it's for real. 
right here. Here are the elite of Israel. Here are the super righteous. These are the ones who are righteous according to the law. Blameless, like Paul said. Confidence. Boasting in the flesh. These are the ones who stand at the front of the temple and pray like this. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Thank you that I'm not like these extortioners, these unjust adulterers, and even this tax collector back here. While the tax collector's back here beating his chest saying, have mercy on me. And he said, you're lost. You're lost. He declared, Jesus declares them to be worse than the worst. He declares them to be worse than the tax collectors. He declares them to be worse than the prostitutes. More than that, he says, the prostitutes have entered the kingdom of heaven and you're out. Don't miss the weight of that thundering indictment on them in front of everybody. Jesus is saying that the worst in society has somehow made it into the kingdom of God before them. That the sinners somehow have been made made and declared right with God despite their gross rebellion against God's law for most of their lives. While the self-righteous externally uh, obedient are cut off and like Gentiles. How can this be? about to explain. Unlike most of his parables where he doesn't give an explanation except to the disciples, he's going to explain the whole thing. He's saying you are lost because of this. He's going to explain why they're lost. He's going to say you're lost because you refuse to repent and believe. Look at that. Verse 31, 32. He says, Jesus says, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. How? Why? Because or for John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe John the Baptist. So think about it. They are lost because they didn't believe John the Baptist. Like, don't miss the eternal importance that Jesus is putting on believing what John the Baptist preached. He says, you didn't believe John the Baptist, but they did. That's why they're in That's why you're out. So your response to John the Baptist preaching is actually what determined whether or not you entered the kingdom of heaven. And what was the sign that showed that you believed what John the Baptist was preaching? The baptism of John, which is exactly what Jesus just asked about. Now, can you imagine the humility, the genuine change of heart that it would take for these guys to go out into the wilderness and be baptized by that dude wearing camel's hair that eats locusts and honey. 
That they would have to take off their fancy highfalutin self-righteous robes and go out there to this man. Look, they had no need for the baptism of repentance. They're blameless under the law. They're sons of Abraham by blood. They're servants of God by occupation, by appointment. Jesus says, none of that matters. What matters is, do you believe what John said? Because he bore witness about me. Look what's going on here. These religious leaders are like that cursed fig tree. Green leaves, but no fruit. They look good from a distance. But when you get close and do a little inspection, nothing. No fruit. They have this showy external righteousness. Jesus is about to call them whitewashed tombs, pretty on the outside, dead bones on the inside, no change of heart, no real fruit, no real doing of the will of the Father. Wouldn't know what the Son was supposed to do, the will of the Father in that parable? He's basically saying that tax collectors and the prostitutes, they afterward changed their mind and they went and did the will of the Father. But these guys didn't do the will of the Father. What is the will of the Father? To look on the Son and believe. What does God require? What work does God require? Believe in the one whom God sent. What is the commandment we must keep? Believe in the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ. This is what Scripture says the will of God is. So, what is the fruit we must bear first and foremost? And believe and follow Jesus Christ as Lord. They are lost. And there are people in this room right now that are lost because they refuse to believe that Jesus really is the Christ. He really is the Son of God. And they will not follow Him. Jesus told these men you will not come to me that you may have life. This is why they're lost. They would not believe. If they believed rightly, they would not be asking the one who has all authority in heaven on earth by what authority If they believed that he was the Lord and it was his temple, they would be bowed down on their face. But you know, Jesus exposes, and this, this is applicable to people in this room right now, He exposes that their unbelief is not just a matter of ignorance. They know who He is. And they want to kill Him. Not to step on your sermon next week, but man, look at verse 37 and 38. In this parable, the master of the house after sending prophet after prophet after prophet, they kill the prophets. He says, I'm going to send my son. They're going to respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. This is the son. Come, let's kill him. They know. And they hate him. What's going on here? And I just want to warn you. This is an informed rejection of Jesus Christ. 
This is the worst thing on earth that anybody could possibly do. Is to believe with your head that Jesus is the Son of God and the Christ, and yet refuse to live and act like it. To, to say that you believe that the Son of God loved you and came down in this world and died for your sins and gave himself up for you and live indifferent to that. To have a head knowledge. To believe in your head. These guys know he's the Son of God. They know he's the Christ. They want to kill him. To say, I will not have this man reign over me. That's the worst thing any human could ever do. Just have an informed knowledge of Jesus Christ and reject it or not come to him or ignore him. They're lost because they know and they still won't believe and repent. This is the indictment. Look at verse 32. It says, even when you saw it, look, even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe in him. Believe you. Did they know? Yeah. They saw it. What did they see? They saw evidence that John the Baptist's ministry was true and was from God. They saw the tax collectors and prostitutes turn from their sins and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. They saw society's worst and most wicked people go out to John the Baptist confessing their sins. They, they saw the crooked made straight. They saw the tax collectors. In Luke, there's a, there's a case where the tax collector goes out confessing his sins to John the Baptist. He says, what do I need to do? And he starts to start living right. Quit charging more than you're supposed to. And they saw those things happen. They saw John the Baptist's message change people's lives. They saw the gospel change people. And they refused to come. And more than that, they saw evidence that Jesus really was who John the Baptist said he was. There's one mightier than me coming. Man, they've seen that. Look, right after Jesus was baptized, right after Jesus cleansed the temple for the first time three years ago, these same men sent one of their own, a guy named Nicodemus, to investigate Jesus. And when he confronted Jesus, he confessed. Nicodemus confessed that they knew. He said, we know. We know you're a man sent from God because nobody can do the things you do unless God is with them. We know. They knew. They've known for three years. How many, how many signs and wonders had Jesus done since then? Oh, and not to mention yesterday. Yesterday. What's going on yesterday? 24 hours ago. Verse 14, the blind and the lame came to Jesus in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of God, they were indignant. <laughs> Even when they saw it, they still would not change their minds and believe. They were rebellious from the heart like the first son was rebellious from the mouth. They were indignant. And you know what? They deserved the wrath of the Son of God. That's what they deserved. But guess what? With the Lord has forgiveness. With the 
Lord there's forgiveness. I mean, there is lost his command. Matter of fact, they are actually enemies. Right now, they are enemies of Jesus Christ. They are raging against the Lord and his anointing. But you know what? This saying from their Torah is still true. The Lord is a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin. And look at the end of verse 31. Man, unless you're thinking about what Jesus is saying here, you're not going to see this wonderful act of mercy here. Look, look at how Jesus' words, full of wisdom, yet full of mercy, is holding out hope, even for these rebellious, self-righteous hypocrites. Even in the scathing indictment, grace pours from his lips. He says, <clears throat> verse 31, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Now it's true, they are on the outside looking in. The tax collectors and the prostitutes, they've already entered the kingdom of God and they have it. But you know what? The door is not yet closed. He could have said, they go into the kingdom of God instead of you. Or they go into the kingdom of God without you. You're not in. He could have just cursed them on the spot like the fig tree and watched them wither into condemnation right there. That's not what he does. He still leaves the door wide open for his greatest enemies. Wide open. The door is still open. The gate of heaven has not yet been closed for you. Forgiveness is still here. It's still available. All you got to do is follow the first son in the parable. All you got to do is follow the lead. Remember the ones that went in before you? Just follow them. Follow the tax collectors. Follow the prostitutes. Follow John's way of righteousness. Follow me, Jesus is saying. Change your mind and follow me. Change your mind and believe. Now look, can you imagine if one of those, just one of those guys, one of those chief priests fell down and said, have mercy on me, something. Where would he be right now? In the kingdom of heaven, sitting beside a prostitute. What do we say to these things? But how does this apply to us? How should we respond? Well, the first one is we need to do what Jesus is calling them to do. If you have not changed your mind about Christ and believed on him for forgiveness of sins, that's what you need to do right now. The door is still open. Ask yourself, where am I in this story? If you're here this morning and you are not a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, where are you in this story? And I want to remind you of, of, of something. Don't talk yourself out of it right now. As you, as you think about this question, where I'm in this story, don't talk yourself out of it. Because remember, Jesus right now knows your every thought as you deliberate that question. Look, he's listening in while the Sanhedrin de- deliberated that question. 
He knows your heart. He knows your conscience. He's actually the one who drives the conviction of sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. Today, if you hear His voice, today, if you hear His voice, come. Do not harden your heart. Jesus gives us two categories of unrepentant sinners, exemplified by two groups in Jewish society. You have the rebellious son, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, and you have the religious hypocrite, the religious leaders of Israel. Where are you at? Where are you at in those two? Are you the one still rebelling against God? You know what you need to do, but you keep saying, like the first son in the parable, I will not. I will not come to Christ. I will not come to Christ because I love my tax collecting and the things of this world. I will not come to Christ because I love my prostituting and the, the, the gratification of the flesh. I will not come to Christ. I want the world more, not less. I want to do what I want to do. I don't want to listen to Christ. I will not have Him reign over me. Stop. Change your mind. Change your mind. Or are you like the hypocrites? The fig tree with no fruit. The whitewashed tomb, dead inside. Nice and moral on the outside. Looks like you're obedient to God. Look a pretty good, pretty good person. Really good at putting on a religious show for a couple hours every week when you have to. Always make sure that you do and right and say the right things, the right things in religious settings. But you have no real love for Jesus. Let me remind you of this. Regardless of which description you find yourself in, the reality is the same and your response is the same. The reality is that you are lost like every other sinner ever born. And the response is the same. Change your mind. Come to Christ. Come to Christ like these prostitutes did. Like these tax collectors did. That come to Christ confessing your sins. Come to Christ believing that He is the Son of God who died for sin. He is the one raised from the dead on the third day. He is the only way that you can be made right with God. He is the only way that offers total forgiveness for your life of rebellion and your showy self-righteousness. He's the only one. Change today and come to Jesus Christ. One more thing before we say the Lord's Supper. For those of us that do know Christ, those that have changed our mind by the grace of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, I want us to imitate Christ. Imitate the wise and gracious tactics of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> our, sometimes we're often called to confront sin or to confront sinners. Pay attention to how Jesus does it. Wise and gracious, careful, deliberate, but unafraid. He's doing it. He's doing it sharply and strongly, but look how careful. Like, think about it. Be slow, be tactful, be diplomatic, be strategic. 
asking questions, carefully thought out questions. Get to the root of the issue. We call people to repentance. Be like Christ. And guess what? You probably lack wisdom. You probably don't have this sort of wisdom. Good news. If anyone lacks wisdom, let them ask God. And he'll give it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. It reveals so many dimensions, unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here that we would, we would be more like Christ. Give us more wisdom. Give us more boldness. Give us more tact in dealing with sinners so that we might be a means of grace to, to bring about the repentance that leads to life for people. For people that are lost, for our brothers and sisters who are struggling with sin, Lord, let use us as a means of grace to bring about repentance with wisdom and clarity love with an eye to the eternal. Father, I pray that you would save sinners here today. Lord, that you would call them out of darkness that for the first time, Lord, you would really show them who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for them and bring them and draw them to Christ. No one can come to him unless you draw them. Draw people to Christ today. Lord, help us to rejoice what you have done for us. Thank you for the grace in Jesus' name. Amen.